So it's really good to see you. I want to thank y'all for being a part of the group tonight. Um, as we get ready to, we're going to wind up a, uh, a lecture that we've been working on for three months. I say three months, three classes. Um, and we're talking about God's decree. We're talking about God's decree. Um, when we say God's decree, what that means is before the world was ever created, before God ever said, let there be light, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit had already foreordained and pre-planned the way that the world was going to fall out. And for me and you, um, that's overwhelming, and that's really a hard thing to grapple with in our minds. And one of the reasons it's hard for us to grapple with that in our minds is because we are so uh, anthropocentric. We are so man-centered. Our lives center around us and what we think and what we feel and what we see and what we know. When in reality, this whole world is spinning based on God. What, right? what, what does the Scripture tell us in Colossians? That God is the one, Jesus Christ is the one that literally holds all things together. That, that every atom, every molecule in the universe is in His hands. And He's in control of everything. And He's in control of you and He's in control of me. And, and, and it's a really, the lesson as we've gone through it for the last couple of months, it's really a struggle to wrestle with that and think about the fact that God is actually in control of me. Like that He actually controls me. And one of our first knee-jerk reactions is, well, God don't need puppets. Like, He don't need a puppet. He don't need somebody on a string. But the reality is, is either God is going to control you or sin is going to control you. You see, when you were dead in your trespass of sin, walking according to the course of this world, uh, following the prince of power of the air, the uh, the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience, when you were a child of wrath, when you were a child of disobedience, the reality is you weren't in control of your life then. Sin controlled you. And so when God controls us, He sets us free to be who He created us to be. So when God controls us, there's freedom. When sin and self controls us, there's bondage. You see how that works? And so one of the the first group that we had together, the first class we had together, one of the main things that we focused on was the fact that, number one, God is good. God is good. Remember when He created everything? He created, they let there be light, and He saw that the light was good. And when He created Adam and Eve, He saw that they were good. And the birds and the bees and the flowers and the trees, the sun, the moon, the stars, see, good, 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 good. And the reality is, the first time that God says it's not good was what? Who remembers that? Does anybody know? God, the first time God said it is not good. It's still in the, yeah, He did, in the, cre- in the creation story. Actually, in, in uh yeah, it's in Genesis chapter 2. And God saw that the man was alone and it was not good, right? God saw that it was not good for the man to be alone because he needed a helper, right? So for all of you guys in this room, you can swallow your pride. If you need a helper, that means you were not created to do it alone, right? And for all you ladies in the room, he said after the fall that you were going to try to... Uh, have rule over your husband. You were going to rule over him. So we all have our flaws, right? But the reality was when God created everything, everything was good. It was man who turned away from God's goodness who lost the freedom that we had. And it was Jesus Christ who came into the world to set us free again from the bondage of sin, from the bondage of death, from the curse. And so one of the first things that we learned was is that God is good. And that's very important for us to remember. Right? 
And the next thing that we learned is God is in control. All right. So we talked about the fact that there is no one in heaven today, whether it be your mother, your father, your grandparents, your aunt, your uncle, a brother, a sister, a loved one, whoever it is that you're thinking of right now, if they are in heaven today, they did not deserve to be there. It was through the shed blood of Jesus Christ and the drawing of the Holy Spirit and the regeneration of the Holy Spirit in their life that gave them the inheritance of eternal life. Okay? And there, and when you think about the people that are in hell today, there is not one person in hell that is there wrongly accused. And that's hard for me and you to grasp. Because we say, well, who would choose hell? Well, the reality is, that is how evil we are before God saves us and regenerates us. We would rather follow the course of this world that's on a path for destruction, and all of you know that in your own lives from what you've done, what I've done. We were on a course for destruction. It was God who was in rich in mercy that reached down and saved me. You see? And as you read the Bible, what you'll find is God is good and God is in control. Even with Adam hiding in the bushes naked, it was God who came down into the garden. And what did He say? Adam, where are you? Right? And remember, it wasn't Adam that went looking for God. And as you read all of the accounts in the Bible of people coming to know God, behind every one of those, you'll find out that it was God that was reaching out to them first. Right? How many of y'all remember the story of the woman with the issue of blood? All right. What did she do? She came to Jesus and she grabbed it, grabbed it, and she was healed. And what did it say? By your faith, you've been healed, right? Well, the reality was her faith was in Jesus. And you would say, well, wait a minute. Now she was sick, and she was the one coming looking for Jesus. But if you go back and read that story, this is what it said. And she had heard about Jesus. That's all right. Right? Because salvation comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. So you've got to hear it before you'll believe it. And the only way you'll hear it is if God opens your ears. So if you're in this room today and you are a child of God, if you are a born-again, blood-bought child of God, the reason is is because of God's grace alone and nothing that you did. Now, again, that grace against our natural... Wait a minute, I went down the aisle and gave my heart to Jesus. God doesn't need anything from you or me. He doesn't need your heart. What you and I need is a regenerated heart. We need a new, newly created heart, a heart of flesh. You see? So if you went down an aisle and gave your heart to Jesus, the reason you did that was because he had already given you a new heart to give him. And so we always want to make sure that God gets the glory for everything that happens. Amen. That includes all of the horrible things that have happened on this earth. God is not the cause of evil, but He does allow it. God is not the cause of evil, but He does allow it. Why does He allow it? Because at the end of time, what is going to happen on Judgment Day, when everyone stands before Him, God is going to be glorified both in His grace and in His justice. Every person that will be in hell is there because they deserve it, and God is expressing His justice, that He is a just and a holy, holy, holy God. And every person that is in heaven is because He is a merciful 
So both those that are in heaven and both those that are in hell are going to glorify the Creator. That's hard for us to wrestle with, isn't it? Because immediately, what do we think? That's not fair. How could He create people to go to hell? Well, He created us all. And He knows where everybody's going. And He knows where everybody's going. And He did not base where they are going based on your decision. It was decreed before the... Remember the, the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world? It was already planned out. And again, that's hard for us to wrestle with. But if we can always remember that God is good and that God is in control, we can be at peace with what I'm trying to show you. And so what I want to do now is I want to go to the Scriptures and I want to show you how God is in control. And all through time and all through eternity, God's plan has been playing out, even with all of the evil things that have happened in this world. And so look with me. If you remember, last time we were together, we were in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, let me read that really quick just to remind you, and then we're going to quickly go through Romans chapter 9. In Romans chapter 8, it says this in verse 28. I guarantee you that somebody in the last couple of days has quoted this verse to you. This is a very famous verse, and everybody loves it. Look what it says. And we know, who is we? The born-again believer. Remember, Romans chapter 8 is talking about life in the Holy Spirit. So it's not the people that are not born again. They don't know it. They're blind to this reality. But if the Spirit of God lives in you, you have a peace and a joy about what this says. We know that God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love God... And to those who were called according to His purpose. And so as you read the Bible, I want you to go back and look now. And I want you to notice every person that God gets to is because He called them. He always, He's always the first cause. He's the one that put the breath in your nose and He's going to be the one to take it out. And He's always the first cause. When the, you could talk about the children of God. Who were the children of God in the Old Testament? Right, And he called them his chosen people, didn't he? He never, ever, ever, ever calls them his choosing people. Because the reality is, even after he chose them, they chose to run away, didn't they? And he had to constantly reprimand them. He had to constantly uh, uh, send them into captivity. He had to constantly discipline them and, and use the, his rod and his staff to comfort them, if you will. You see? And so... All through the Old Testament, God is choosing a people for Himself. And that's the story. And so look what it says, and those who are called according to this purpose. For those He foreknew, He also predestined. And that's the word we hate. We hate that word. Oh my goodness, how could He ever predestine someone for hell? The reality is, according to Adam, and the fact that we are in Adam, and the fact that we are under the curse in Adam, how many of us should go to hell? Everyone. And what this is showing us is that even though the whole world deserved to go to hell, there was a people that God foreknew and He predestined. He knew He was going to save them. Amen. And think about it. You say, how, how dare you say that's, that's mean. But have you ever thought about the fact that when God destroyed the earth with a flood, only eight out of the whole entire world were saved? Talk about a limited scope of salvation. 
eight people and the rest of the world died in a flood. And if God had chosen, He could have wiped them all out and started over again, couldn't He? But you know what it said? It said, but Noah found favor in God's eyes. Noah was one of his favorites. And it wasn't anything that Noah did because as soon as he got on the boat, he got drunk and got naked. Okay? It wasn't Noah's righteousness that caused God to point him out of all of the people in the world. It was God's mercy that reached down and said, you're going to be my new start. Alright? And so it says, Who He foreknew, He predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these He predestined, He called. And those He called, He justified. And those He justified, He all glorified. So that, that passage we just read there is known as the golden chain of redemption. And it can't be broken on any section of it. It's five different links, right? It's five different links. And if you are foreknown, you will be called, you will be justified, you will be glorified. There's no way it's going to be broken. Because whose work is it? It's God's work. Now, why is that? Why should that be such a comfort to you? Because you can't screw it up. It's His work and it's based on what His Son did on that cross. Are you with me? Amen. So if you're doubting your faith tonight, if you're here tonight and you're doubting your faith, the reason you're doubting your faith is because you are putting your trust in something that you have done, are doing, or will do, or you're doubting because of something you have done, are doing, or will do. That's why we doubt. We doubt because of something we haven't done, we're not doing, or we won't do. Or we're trusting in something that we have done, we are doing, or will do. That's the wrong kind of religion, guys. That's the kind of religion that says a man can ascend unto heaven. But what did Jesus say? No man ascends unto heaven except he who descended from heaven, even so the Son of God. What does that mean? You don't climb to God. He descends to you. His Son, Jesus, clothed Himself in humanity and came down here and saved us. Right? right? And who am I depending on? Jesus. As soon as I start depending on me, that's when the doubt comes. Because deep down inside, we know we can't do it. And so we trust in Him. And so it says, whom He predestined, He called. Who He called, He justified. And those He justified, He also glorified. So what does that mean? If He predestined, if He called you, if He... Uh, drew you to Him, if He justified you, if He is sanctifying you today, that means that on the last day you will receive a glorified body and you will inherit the kingdom that His Son shed His blood to purchase for you. And it's not going to fail. Because it's His work and it's what He's done. Remember, God is good and God is in control. And God is just but God is merciful. We live in a world today where people want to uh, amplify God's love and there is nothing in the world wrong with that. The Bible says God is love. But nowhere in the Bible does it say God is love, love, love. But there's several places where it said He is holy, holy, holy. He's other than us. He's God and we're not. He's the creator. We are the creation. 
And He loved us enough to save us from our, ourselves. Amen. And it will happen. It's going to happen. And so, look uh, if you if you consider reading, if you get, if you get the the gist of what Paul is saying here, look what it says in verse um, thirty one. If God is for us, then who can be against us? If God is for you, who can be against you? Nobody. Nobody. The creation cannot tell the Creator what to do. And if He's got you in His hand and says, She or He belongs to me, right? Look what it says in verse 38. I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, that's demons and devils, or principalities, nor the things present, nor the things to come, nor powers, nor height, or depth, or any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ our Lord. Look at verse 33. Who will bring a a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. If you are justified, that means you are declared righteous in God's eyes. Justified means it's justified, never done anything wrong, right? That's what it means. When God looks down on you today in this room, if you are His child, if you are a blood-bought, born-again child of God, and He looks down in this room on you right now, you are clothed in the righteousness of His Son, Jesus. And He does not see your past, and He does not see the sins that you're committed today, and He is not looking at the ones you're going to commit tomorrow, because they are covered in the blood of Christ. And that should give you hope. And that should give you peace because there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ, right? And so that was what we had been talking about. And so today I want to focus in chapter 9 on reminding us that God is in control and everything falls out according to the way He plans it, okay? All right, so and, and this is all one letter. And so Paul is not stopping. He's just shown us that it is God who is in control that God is the one that saves us, that God is the one that keeps us saved, and that it's His choosing, that He's the one that chose to save us. And what He's going to do is He's going to go back through Jewish history and show us how it's been working all along the same way. So He says, I'm telling you the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me by the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and an unceasing grief in my heart, for I wish I myself could be accursed or separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. According to the flesh. What does that mean? Paul is Jewish. He's a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a Hebrew of the Hebrews of the tribe of Benjamin, right? When he went through the Ten Commandments, he said, I've done them all until I got to coveting and then I failed, right? He, so Paul was a righteous in the eyes of the Jewish people. Paul was righteous. According to the standard of, of the Jews, he was upper class. He was a double PhD from the uh, school of Gamaliel. He was, he was a, the man. And what he's saying is, my heart is breaking for Israel. Why? Because in John chapter 1 it says this, He came into His own and His own did not receive Him. So what had the nation of Israel done to their Messiah? Nailed Him to a cross and rejected Him. And what Paul is doing is his heart is breaking because Jesus is Jewish and the whole Old Testament is the story of the nation of Israel and the very people that were supposed to be saved by the Messiah are the ones that nailed Him to the cross and rejected Him. And so look what Paul says next. They are Israelites belong the adoption, sons, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple services, who are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all God blessed forever. But it is not though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who descended from Israel. Alright, so watch what he's saying. There are a lot of people 
that nailed Jesus to the cross that died and went to hell. We read in the book of Acts that before before Jesus was even dead, that Judas had went out and hung himself, right? Judas rejected the Messiah. Jewish Judas was Jewish and he rejected the Messiah. And so what what Paul is saying here is God's promise did not fail. Not all of Israel was Israel. What does he mean by that? He meant that just because you were a physical descendant of Abraham did not necessarily mean that you were a child of the promise. Does that make sense? When he says not all of Israel is Israel, what he means is Israel is he who strives with God. Israel is the promised nation. And what he's saying is there's a bunch of sons of Abraham that aren't believers. But it's not as though the promise is without effect. What's he saying? God always keeps His promise, right? Now look what he says next. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendant, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. That it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. Alright? Now, it's very important. Every child of Abraham was circumcised on the eighth day and was considered a covenant child of the old covenant. Right? But the problem was Esau was circumcised and so was Ishmael. They had the covenant sign but they didn't have the promise. And do you remember the difference in Abraham's birth to Hagar's birth of Ishmael and Sarah's birth of Isaac? What was the difference in their births? Does anybody remember? Huh? Isaac was the promised child, but what made it different? Who remembers? What was so different about Hagar and Abraham and Sarah and Abraham? Well, he did love Sarah, but his love didn't matter. She was his wife. She was his wife. But why did he have a son with... Uh... Oh, because he opened up her womb in her old age. Good. All right. So with Hagar, it was Abraham and Sarah and their choice to have a baby. That's right. It was what they were doing. It was according to the flesh. It was their will and their, their trying to make a child a promise. But what did God say? It ain't going to be Ishmael. And he waited until Sarah's womb was dry. Right? There's barren wombs all through the Bible if you've ever thought about that. Right? What about um, uh, Samuel? His mom couldn't have babies, could she? And what she do? She went to the priest and cried anyway. He said, next year this time you'll have a boy. And then what about um, Samson? His mom couldn't have kids. Right? Barren wombs, barren wombs. And what's so, what is so special about this barren womb? It's not by your strength and your might, but the power of God. You see? And so, Abraham and Sarah could take no credit for Isaac. That's right. He was a child of the promise. You see how that works? Yeah, Alright, now watch what he says next. He, so that's, he's talking about that, but he says, and not only this, but there was Rebecca. She conceived twins from our father Isaac. So watch. The first thing he showed was Abraham, Hagar, Abraham, Sarah. Two different baby mamas, if you will. 
But now, and what did he say? No, Ishmael, you're not a child of the promise. Yes, Isaac, you are a child of the promise. Amen. Now, what's he going to do? He's going to say, now let's talk about Rebecca. Because we got one baby daddy now and two babies in the same womb. And what happens when they come out? The first one to come out was who? Esau. Esau. Who's supposed to get the promise? The firstborn. But the firstborn didn't get to inherit the promise, did he? Who was it in the promise? Jacob. Jacob, the second born. Now watch what it says. It said these twins were not born yet. They had not even done anything good or bad so that God's purpose according to His choice would stand. Not because of works, but because of Him who calls. And it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. And just as written, it says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. It's for they're born. And God said, Jacob I've loved and Esau I've hated. What shall we say then? Is there no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. That's God forbid. Mm-hmm. So what he's saying is this. How in the world can you say that God hated Esau and loved Jacob and chose them before they were ever born? Is God unjust in doing that? Is He wrong for doing that? Is he wrong for choosing one boy and not choosing the other boy? And you know what Paul said? God forbid. Because remember, God is good. He's always good. And every decision He makes is good. Now, watch what he says next. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Yes. What do we deserve? Wrath. What do we deserve? Justice and wrath. What does God give us through His Son, Jesus Christ? Mercy, mercy and grace. You see how that works? And it says, For the Scripture said to Pharaoh, For this purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power and you that my name might be proclaimed. It said that God put Pharaoh on the earth to show the whole world that God is the Creator and man is not. You know the, the story behind Pharaoh and his battle with Moses, right? All of those plagues that God sent down on them was against the Egyptian gods and goddesses. The Egyptians worshipped the Nile River. So what did God do? He turned it into blood. The Egyptians worshipped a frog-headed woman named Hecuba. So what did God do? Sent frogs. Right? And, and all of the plagues were God showing the Egyptians that their gods were punks, that they were idols, that they were demons, that they were not real. Mm-hmm. He was showing that He was in charge. And you know what He said? I raised up Pharaoh and destroyed him. To show you that I'm God and you're not. <clears throat> and when you read it, before Moses ever goes to Pharaoh, before he ever even goes into Pharaoh's presence, God says this I'm going to send you to Pharaoh and I'm going to harden his heart. He's not going to believe you. Now, when Moses went, he presented to Pharaoh the truth. And what did Pharaoh do? Pharaoh rejected the truth. And then what did it say? And Pharaoh hardened his heart. So there's a double hardening going on there. God is hardening his heart, and the more uh, God hardens his heart, what does Pharaoh do? He hardens his heart as well. Right? Now it says this, 
So he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Now watch this. This is very important because this is an argument that you and I will make when we struggle with what I'm showing you tonight. Look what he says in verse 19. Now you're going to say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? You know what Paul's saying? We're going to ask, God, how could you send Pharaoh and Esau and Cain and Judas, how could you send them to hell? If you're the one that created them to to be evil, how can you find fault with them? How can you blame them? Now I want you to think about it. We're going to see this in just a minute. All through the Scriptures, you know that Judas is prophesied in the Scriptures to be the one that was going to sell Jesus out. Like in the book of Psalms, it literally talks about Judas in the book of Psalms 900, 700, 800 years before Jesus was ever born. Before Judas was ever born, Judas was already prophesied to be the one that was going to sell Jesus out. And so what Paul is doing here is he's cutting an argument off. He's saying, wait a minute. You're going to say to me, how can God rightfully send Judas to hell when he's the one that, that decreed that he was going to be the one to sell Jesus out? Right? Do you understand the argument, the fluid argument that's going on there? And in our natural mind, as natural human beings, we're like, yeah. But did you know that's the same argument that Adam used in the garden? The woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit and I ate it. If you'd have left me alone, God, and not give me that woman, it's your fault, God. Not mine. The woman you gave me, it's your fault. See what he did? But look how Paul answers. 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? In other words, he's saying, wait a minute now. If God hardened Pharaoh's heart, that's not fair that God threw him in hell. If God's the one that hardened his heart, that's not fair. But look what he says. Look what Paul says in the next verse. On the contrary, who are you, O man, to answer back to God... Will the thing molded say to the molder, why did you make me this way? You know what he's saying? Who are you to answer back to God in His decree, His plan, His providence, His control? God is good, and you're evil, and you're questioning God. Who are you, O man? So when I find myself on that side of the argument, going, well, that's not really fair, God, that you sent Him to hell, then I'm on the wrong side of Paul. And I'm on the wrong side of Scripture. And I'm on the wrong side of the argument. What am I supposed to do? If I'm a child of the promise, you know what I do? I yield to His will for my life. That's right. Glory. That's right. If, if I am predestined for hell, what do I do? Reject it. Who, who's predestined? Everyone. But you know what? I mean, you don't know who that is. And you better never get an attitude where you think you do. How do we know who God predestines for heaven and hell? We don't. That's not our choice. We can't see that. That's too big for us. You know what he tells me and you to do? To go out and share the gospel with people and let the Holy Spirit do the electing. I share the promise. And you know what happens? I share his word and the Holy Spirit. That has nothing to do with me. I share his word. And who does that promise go out to? Everyone. I am to share that uh, that promise with everyone. And who believes? 
those that God draws to himself. And it's his choice, and i got to be okay with that. Because he's good, and he's in control. If it's based on my choice, then who gets the glory for it? So think about this. One day we're all standing up in heaven, and I'm standing here, and another guy's standing next to me, and the guy next to me says, well, the reason I'm in heaven is because I walked down an aisle and gave my heart to Jesus. Right? Who's getting glory in that statement? He is. Yeah. I did it. But you know what I say? I was dead in trespass and sin, walking according to the course of this world, following the prince of following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now working in the son of the disobedient. And I was a child of wrath, just like the rest of creation. But God, who is rich in mercy, saved a sinner, a hell-bound, hell-deserving sinner like me. Amen. Amen. And he did it. Amen. And I can rest in that. I can rest in that fact that I'm a child of promise. And it's his promise to me, not my promise to him. Amen? Amen. And guys, if you're in this room tonight and you are a blood-bought child of God, ladies, if you're a blood-bought child of God, God has reached down into some of the lowest pits of despair in this world to save a broken sinner like you. And the deeper you were in the mud the more grace and glory is given to God. What did King David say? What did David say? You you rescued me from the muck and the mire. That's right. And you set my feet upon a rock. Who is a rock? Jesus. Who is Jesus? He's the promise of the Father. He's the eternal plan of our Creator. He is the Creator. And so my feet are resting on that promise. I'm standing on the promises of God. Not on my promises. Not on what I do. Not on what a preacher has done for me. Or not what somebody did by laying hands on me. Or not me speaking in tongues. Or not me saying a prayer. None of that. Not my, I'm not dependent on my reading of the Bible. I'm not dependent on how much I pray every day. I'm not dependent on uh, how many people I share the gospel with. All I'm depending on is the shed blood of my Savior and that empty tomb. Because that is the declaration of the promise that I have. And it's nothing to do with me. And he gets all the glory for it. Alright, so he says, On the contrary, you, O man, who answers back to God, the thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make some lumps one vessel for honorable use and the other for common use? What if God, even though He was willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And He did so to make the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy which He prepared beforehand. So what that's saying is, is there is a potter. Who is the potter? The Father. He's the potter. We are the clay. And remember how he formed Adam in the garden? What it's saying is that he he formed vessels of wrath and he formed vessels of mercy. Wow. He's the one that made them. He made Pharaoh. Pharaoh can say the same exact thing that David can say before or Jeremiah can say. Before I was born, 
when I was still in the womb, you knew me. And he knew everything that Pharaoh was going to do. He knew everything that I was going to do. He knew everything that you were going to do with your life. And he knows what's going to happen tomorrow. And he knows what happens the next day. And he knows what happens in eternity. And you're in his hands. And there's no better hope than that. To know that God is good, that God is in control, and that God always keeps His promise. I want to quickly, I got about five minutes left. I want to share just a couple of things really fast with you. Do you remember in the very beginning when God cursed the serpent and He said this to him? He said, um, And because you have done, the Son has cursed are you above all the creatures of the field, and on your belly you'll go all the days of your life. And he said that, He said that the seed of the woman is going to crush your head. Mm-hmm. Remember what he said? He said, how did he say it? He said, uh, and you will bruise his heel and the seed of the woman will crush your head. You will bruise his heel and he will crush your head. So what it was, what he was saying, what God was saying to the serpent was this, hey, uh, devil, you tricked that woman, but one day that woman is going to have a baby that's going to get you. And it wasn't Adam's baby. It was Eve's baby. It said the seed of the woman. That's Genesis 3.15. That's known as the first mention of the gospel in the Bible. There's a big fancy term for it. and I guess it's Latin or Greek or something. It's called the Proto-Evangelion. The first mention of the gospel. All right? What did it say? It says that the woman is going to have a baby. And that baby, you're going to bruise his heel, devil. You're going to bite him. You're going to sting. But he's going to take that same heel that you bruise and pick it up and crush your head with it. All right? Now, that's amazing to think about, isn't it? Because who was the first bo- person born of the seed of a woman? Jesus. Abel, Cain was, uh, Cain and Abel, Adam was there, Daddy. But Jesus was born of his father. He right. he skipped, he skipped the curse. You see. So all the way back in the very beginning, what did God say? One day that woman, devil, one day that woman's going to have a baby that's going to get you. And so do you ever wonder why uh, Satan inspired Pharaoh to kill all the little Hebrew boys? Do you ever wonder why Satan inspired Herod to kill all the baby boys that was born at the same time Jesus was? Because the devil knew the promise, and he was trying to circumvent it. He said, if I can kill him before he gets grown, I got him. You see? And so all through history, that plan has been going on. So I want to show you a couple things really quick, and then we're going to close. Flip with me to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. This is when Abraham was receiving the promise. We really don't have enough time to get into this, but we're going to try for just a minute. Y'all bear with me. Uh, Genesis 15. It says this. We're going to look at verse 13. Genesis 15, verse 13. God said to Abraham, Know for a certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. Mm-hmm. Alright, so this is before Isaac was born, and this is before Jacob was born, and this is before Joseph was born. Way before they were born. And so what is God saying? He's saying, Abraham, your kids are going to wind up in a foreign land living as slaves for 430 years. 400 years. And guess what? After Joseph and them went and settled down in Egypt, guess how long they stayed in Egypt? 400 years. And it was to the day when they walked out of there. Like, it was to the day that that, that 
right. he killed the firstborn and they walked out. Why? Because God always keeps His promise. And so if you remember how the story went, Isaac was the child of promise. And then who was the next child of promise? Jacob was the next child of promise. And then what did God do? God took the 11th son, Joseph, and all of his brothers hated him and sold him into slavery and sent him off to a place called where? Egypt. Right? And then look at the end of Genesis 50. Look really quick. Let's see if I, Some of you all may be familiar with the story. I hope you are. If you're not, please get familiar with it. Look at Genesis uh, chapter 50. And let's look at verse 18. This is after his daddy Jacob had died. It says this. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for I am I in God's place. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you. So what happened? The boys, after Jacob died, they were afraid that after Jacob died that Joseph was going to get them back for what they had done to him. And what did, Jacob, what did Joseph say to them? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Their will, their natural desire was to kill their brother. They wanted him dead. And what did, what did Joseph say? You meant it for evil, but God took your evil intention and turned around and used it for good because my seed, my baby, that's going to crush the serpent's head is coming through you and he's going to be protected here in Egypt for 430 years. And then you go all the way to the New Testament. What do you see? You see a bunch of brothers nailing their brother to a cross. And what did Paul? Uh, what did Peter say in his sermon? You and Herod and the leaders, the, the Jewish leaders, meant it for evil. You nailed the Messiah to a cross. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You see? And remember what Paul said in Romans 8? We know that all things work together for good. It didn't say we know that all things are good. It said we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to the purpose. And so why, why do I bring all of this up? Because when you read from Genesis to Revelation, what you're seeing is God is your creator and he always keeps his promise. Amen. And if you are a child of the promise, he's got you. Amen. And you need to rest in what He's done and not what you're doing. And you need to trust Him that He's good and that He's God and that He's in control. And so what we see now is that the plan that God has set in place before the before He ever said, let there be light, there was a plan in place. And that plan is playing out before your very eyes. Before your very eyes. And what does God want you to do? He wants you to rest in that plan and trust Him. Amen. Amen. Father, thank you for this time together. I know this is a very tough subject for us to wrestle with. We are so prone to thinking that it's all about us. But it's about you. And it's about your love for us and about your son Jesus and what he did on that cross to save broken men and women like us. And we thank you. We thank you for our salvation. We thank you for the hope of the promise. And I pray that you will use these words as an encouragement to help us to rest That's what your Sabbath is really about. It's about us resting in you. 
And I pray that you will help us to rest in your truth and your love, your mercy and your grace. And I pray that you will allow us to share that truth and mercy and grace with those around us. Because who knows how many of our family and friends and loved ones and acquaintances and people we're going to bump into the street are your sheep that you poured your blood out to save. And it's just a matter of us going and sharing your promise with them so that you can draw them into the fold. So thank you for your love and your mercy and your grace. Thank you for your providence and your goodness. Thank you for your decree. Thank you for loving us and and saving us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.